0: operations for this year's wisconsin film festival and more importantly than that the head of the programming committee for the wisconsin's own section of the festival and i am here talking this morning and i say here i mean the internet um (laughs) with nathan clark the director of The Passing On, which is one of only two Golden Badger award-winning films at this year's festival. Nathan, I know you got your Golden Badger because I saw you post it yeah. on, on Instagram and, and other social media the other day. It was very nice to see.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we loved it. It's great. My daughters, who uh, love Bucky Badger, uh, were pretty excited about it, and they were already sort of like, do I get it? Do I get it? I said, mm-hmm. no, no, no. I get it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Every time I have to give a speech or, or talk to anyone in any public forum, my daughter who's now in college always says, are you gonna talk about me? Did you talk about me? What'd you say about me? I, I don't know. You don't really, <laughs> the, the opportunity didn't really come up, but yeah. Uh, yeah. But sometimes I will then tell that anecdote as part of whatever speech I'm giving. So. And now
1: she's part of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, Uh, i'm excited to talk to you about the passing on which uh aside from winning the golden badger award is just one of our favorite films in the festival and the film you were one of the first people to submit this year i think if i'm remembering (laughs) this right but but yours was the usually every year in the sort of 100 150 films that we get uh submitted to us for this section uh, there's usually some film that when i see it i'm like oh this is like our gold standard. this is like okay, this is the bar. Uh, I don't think we're gonna see a better film than this this year I'll be and I'll be excited and thrilled if we do <laughs> but uh, but that was the passing on was that for me. I saw it and I was like, oh okay, I know we have one film in the festival for sure yeah. um, so um yeah, how did you come to make this film? what was the What was the
1: spark? Yeah, we were, um, I mean, I've always been sort of interested in, I think if this is the way with a lot of documentary filmmakers, the sort of like, um, at least people that aren't doing sort of, um, you know, advocacy films, they're sort of Mm -hmm. like the, the appeal of, um, observational as opposed to interview based and, um. So anyways, with that as a little bit of a background, we had started working on a film that we had some funding for that was really just more of a standard survey film about people that work in and around death and and that the sort of the idea was to sort of look at what as we look at death, what does it say about what we think about living, right? And uh, so we were just going to interview a bunch of people who had written about death and dying, who worked in death industry. That would include cemeteries, hospice, hospitals, funeral homes. And we were doing a ton of work at that point, um, it, uh, sort of corporate communication work in San Antonio. And so we would, wherever we were doing work, we would look for people. And we had the genius idea to call that film uh, We All Die. Um, because that would have people just would have lined up to see that film. Um, so, anyways, through that process, we met James, and uh, became, we found out about James because we were in San Antonio, and because there was that Texas Monthly article about him as being the national embalmer of the year. And to, to make a long story short, we we thought we were just going to film a segment with him, and we had done that. And then we there was that scene that's about eight minutes into the film where James is listening to Clarence and Anna Marie sort of close a funeral home. And as I was sort of listening to that scene unfold, I was actually on headphones in another room. Even just listening to it, not seeing it, there was something that sort of remarkable that was happening. We already sort of had really grown to like James at that moment. And... um And it just sort of clicked. I I think on the drive home, I said to the other two guys that I was with, I said, I think this needs to be the film. Um, And I think it clicked because of like... One, it was this incredible insight to what it's like to work with around death, like how you answer the phone, how you talk to people. But then it was how he was engaging and talking with them and this sort of like tough love. And I've gotten to this point like in my own career where I need to start thinking about passing it on. Like I need to start thinking about mentorship. So there's some things that I was sort of working through on my own and I always sort of like, With these kind of films, there has to be something you're working on in your own, you know, that keeps you going back. So that's that's how it how it all started.
0: Yeah, that that makes all the sense in the world to me. I can eat. I can totally see you're sort of going about your business. And then you you hear about James, you spend a little time with him and you realize, oh, this guy is gold. I mean, I can build my whole film around him. And then you experience that exchange and it seems like uh, then you realize, wait a minute, I've got even more gold than I thought. The dynamic between James and these interns and especially between him and Clarence uh, is even more magical. Uh, in some ways than just James on his own. Um, yeah. But I, I want to go back one second, because you said you weren't actually even in the room. So is that talk to me uh, about y- y- where you are on location as a director? Uh, some or all the time where you're not even in the room with the with what's happening.
1: So we would do um, we would do a number of different things. Uh, there were some shoots that we were on were two people, some were three. Whenever it was two people, I would operate audio. Um and occasionally I would grab a, a camera and and film as well. Um that being the first shoot, we sort of just felt like we needed to have like multiple perspectives. You know, we thought we had one chance at this, right? And so there was a might be some instances where we wanted to operate two cameras. We figured out pretty quickly we only wanted one camera. Um, so yeah, I was I was sort of listening just because we didn't need another body in there. And there were other points in the shoot practically where you need sort of multiple people. And I also sort of find it's it's helpful for me to listen because I, I we were part of that shoot involved a significant interview with James and. Um, You know, when you're there operating audio or operating the camera, you are thinking about a slew of technical things and your ability to sort of engage with what the story is unfolding. And I think it's really important that, you know, we don't I have this sort of conviction that like you make the film you're given, not the film you want. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot, and there's a number of different levels that involves who you are as a filmmaker, but it involves sort of what the story is, not imposing upon that story. And the key to that is listening to what the story is as it unfolds. Um, so for that first shoot that was a luxury and there were a couple other shoots where we knew we were going to have to sort of divide and conquer because various things were going on um, So I would say about, I would say about twenty five percent of the time there were three of us, and about seventy five. Uh, probably, actually, no. Probably sixty five percent. There were two of us, and ten percent there was one of us.
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, I think doesn't Frederick Weissman, famously is uh, on his shoots is the is the sound guy. Like he's 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 doing sound.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's part of it. To be honest with you, it's it's financial, right? Um, mm. And then part of it as well is you just get a ton of people in a space and it just changes the dynamic. Um, And so even like in that scene, that's a good example of I was able to remove myself into another room where I could hear it. Actually, I don't think I was on headphones. I I think I was just listening to it. Um, And because if I was sitting there watching, they would start playing to me. And um, I mean, you know, introducing a camera and audio already fundamentally changes um, a space, but, you know, having people then watch you, you know. Yeah.
0: I th- This opens up maybe five of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I don't really know how to dive into any specific or all of them, but let's, that scene, that early scene that we get to see where, where um, Clarence and Anna Marie are both reading their, um, their versions of what they, uh, you know, it's uh, what they want to say, to mm-hmm. to a, at the I guess at the end of a funeral service yeah. to the yeah. to yeah. the family and attendees. Um, uh, Clarence in that scene and and throughout the film, most of the film is his reactions to to James's advice admonitions um, uh, is so uh, passive. I guess is one word for it. Mm. Uh, he frequently does not respond. Mm-hmm. even when he's be sort of being asked a direct question, or at least he takes a while before he, and it's, and it's sometimes hard to tell what that dynamic between the two of them, um, uh, indicates. It, and I'm, and I and want to get your take on this. Is it, is it a respect thing, um, with Clarence that he feels like it's not his place to sort of engage in a real back and forth? Or is is it a sort of passive-aggressive act of defiance mm-hmm. to not really react to or directly respond to some of the questions or statements that, that, that James is making? Or is it something else?
1: Yeah, I think there's a probably. I don't think it's the passive-aggressive thing. Um, I think that there's probably two things going on there. I, I think, um, you know, from the very beginning... Um, i referred to him as james i would in all of our conversations i'd pick up the phone hey james how's it going um and i realized uh, pretty quickly that n- most people that are coming through the funeral home will refer to him as reverend bryant or mr bryant and it doesn't matter if they're older than him younger than him um there is in that context uh like a sort of certain level of respect um that and and deference you know I grew up where at at the dinner table I tried to <laughs> the gold standard was beating my dad at an argument, right and like we would go at it right mm-hmm. and and I know a lot of people grow up where like respect and deference at the different dinner table is the number one thing dad speaks, mm-hmm. you listen. Um, And some of that I think is like familial and then some of that is, is cultural. Um, You know, I think uh, if you go to a lot of white churches, the pastor is Joe Frank, you know Um, it's by their first name. If when we were at uh, the church there, it was always Reverend Wilkinson. So I think that there is that like basic sort of, dynamic that was going on there. And, and I think you've got, you know, you've got double level there too, right? You've got, you add the sort of schooling part into it and that sort of like power and, and authority that is part of it. And then I, I think as well, you know, Clarence um, is trying to figure out who he is. And um, I think he really respects and appreciates James. I think he really loves James. And... um and I, so i think that that was that was sort of going on regularly um you know that this this guy that sort of represents both the best and the worst of what you sort of want in your career and your vocation and your being um is sort of both drawing you in and pushing you out it's a strange combination and how do you deal with that how do you when you're still trying to figure out who you are. Um, so.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we, we really go on a journey, um, with Clarence as a character in, in how we see him in his interactions for maybe the first two thirds of the film. Mm -hmm. And then we finally get to see him at the pulpit. Um, you know preaching mm-hmm. and uh we get we suddenly see a side of him uh, verbally um and, and physically i suppose uh that we haven't seen up until that point and it reveals this whole other side of clarence uh and it's and it's a great reveal uh for the audience mm-hmm. i'm wondering uh, uh and, and i probably should have asked this earlier about the about how how long you wound up spending uh you know what period of time are we covering in this film and and i also feel like some of the chronology uh of the film is like well i'm not really sure what i'm not really sure when this happened and 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 the only you know most people sort of look the same throughout the film but clarence's looks change quite a bit um and so i guess my my real question is when did you become aware of this uh the, the the reverend side of Clarence and, um, you know, as opposed to when you chose to reveal that to the audience.
1: Yeah. Um, so th- we filmed like in earnest, sort of there as much as we could from basically January through, um, when Eddie died. Uh, so that included graduation. This was in 2017. Um, And that so that would have been uh, Eddie passed away in the late summer. Graduation would have been in May. Um, We filmed Clarence preaching. I'm trying to think if it was in the fall or the next spring, but it was certainly after the vast majority of the sort of activities. Now, we did film Clarence in church as part of the church choir. He was at a different church at that point. Uh, that scene never really fully worked. It's just really interesting footage. Um, and so there was... And we knew that he had been preaching and stuff like that. So there was sort of a sense of, like, he... Um, it wasn't like he was doing something... We inserted something into the chronology that wasn't true of that moment. Like, the truth of it was... But the facts... The truth was right. The facts were wrong, maybe, would be the way to phrase it. Yeah. Um and but you're right there is i'm glad you sort of also got it like the physicality there was something about when he went up there and started preaching that he just he just looks i mean you know he his hair is a little different but he it's it's different than that he Mm -hmm. embodies this it's like he becomes alive and um and so was that the
0: first time that you were seeing that from him
1: well we saw him as part of the church choir and there was yeah. this funny moment when we filmed it um you know Clarence I, I love Clarence dearly um Clarence uh, thinks he sings better than he does um and the first the singing that is in there is a little is okay um, but when he was part of the choir um he you know we were filming it and you could tell that he, this is and this is part of the reason why I don't think it worked is because he kind of like, it's like he knew the cameras were there and he's like, he's like I got to give the cameras a performance. And so he's like, we got to sing this song. And so he sang this song and it was kind of like, you knew it wasn't going to make the, it wasn't going to be in the version of the film or it wasn't going to be in the service. And so it was just, so we saw these like moments where he would like want to sort of be glorious, if you will. And, but we hadn't seen him, him preach and, you know, we, I I also knew, we also knew, um, you know, what his social life was like and, you know, whether that was like, you know, performing karaoke and, and, you know, the way that he partied and some stuff like that. So there was, um. He wasn't this sort of fully, like, shy, introverted, deferential person. Like, he cut loose um, when he would... Go. So so there was some degree that it wasn't a full surprise, but the degree to which he sort of inhabited it uh, was, I think, a little like, whoa. Oh, there's something there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it, um... Uh, You know, as I I, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder as a filmmaker, if you have this tension within yourself, um, sort of uh, presenting these people as you found them to be and telling their stories, whether it's the most uh, narratively coherent or interesting or focused version of themselves or not versus Seeing the kind of uh, fantastic dynamic and chemistry between these two main characters and wanting to um, not only highlight that but shape the film so that it accentuates uh, those those interactions and and, and and tells that story. I mean I almost uh, there's this scene where the two of them are at this restaurant eating and talking mm-hmm. and uh, for some reason during that scene, I started going off in my mind about imagining, imagining all the kind of fun narrative genre pieces that these two, uh, performers could, could inhabit. Wouldn't, wouldn't they be great in a buddy comedy or, you know, one of those sort of like action slash buddy comedies, you know, that mm-hmm. or a mystery where it's the two morticians who are solving this case together. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, do you, uh, you know, uh, you know how 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 much of a temptation is there to sort of maybe trim away moments that 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 don't add to that story or even make make that make that dynamic more ambiguous or maybe less obvious than it is in the film. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think this is sort of one of the hardest things about documentary filmmaking because it requires like this like honesty. Um, Sometimes this um I don't I don't know if this is this for some reason this is where like my brain goes, right? Mm-hmm. Like we um like power is always a dynamic in documentary filmmaking. Like the moment that you introduce a camera into the equation, or the possibility of whatever you create getting onto whatever medium, like it just introduces this power dynamic that fundamentally changes everything. And one of the hardest things and about documentary filmmaking is sort of navigating that power dynamic in a way that recognizes it and understands that it can never fully go away. Like you can't stop it from existing. Like I can't say Well, James gave me permission. Therefore it's okay. Anything you know, like it there's still this um, You know, it, of course they ask the question, you know, like, well, where's this going to show? I don't know where it's going to show. But if you mention Netflix or PBS or whatever it might be, that it just that lodges in there. And then mm-hmm. you've got this dynamic as a for me as a white middle aged man um, that is out of town, that isn't from San Antonio. Right coming in um, with both an older black man and a younger black man, like that dynamic introduces all sorts of power. And um, and so how do you sort of navigate that? How do you listen to the story in the midst of all of those things? Because those things really do influence what you say and what you hear. And... Um, So that, I think, has been one of the, like, most, um, the thing that I've been thinking about and learning a lot in this process. And it really has changed the story that we, and the characters, like, what we included and what we didn't include. And on top of that, I would say that Clarence, of all the people I've ever filmed, Clarence has been one of the hardest people to sort of figure out sort of who he is. James was in some ways really simple. Um, mm-hmm. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is where I came from. And Clarence had has a very, I think because Clarence is still in process. I think that's mm-hmm. a, a lot of it. And so, um, so I, I think, you know, when we started out, I didn't really think that Clarence was going to be a main character. Um, mm-hmm. That was about halfway through. And... Then we really started talking about, you know, Clarence being gay about halfway through as well and began talking more and more about that. Um, Didn't know that that would be a significant piece. We actually went back and forth about how much it would be part of the film. And um, so in, in some ways, like, we didn't really know who ultimately the characters were until we hit render for the last time. (laughs) <laughs> and it really did change up until that moment there were some significant changes and um so anyways I went down that powered road and I'm not sure that I answered the, that initial question well let me but.
0: let me rephrase or let me ask you this new question um how how much how much is it in your head throughout or as a filmmaker in general uh, how much do you have to or how much do you tend to weigh? your responsibility towards the people who are sharing their lives with you versus weighing your
1: responsibility towards making the best film that you yeah. can make? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have a good answer to it. I, I don't have a good... I, well, I have an answer to what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that we included in the film that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, but they were the right thing to do. The number one example of that is including James's reflection on Clarence being gay, Mm -hmm. and particularly
0: so so great that you say that because that's exactly the moment
1: where I scribbled down this note.
0: Like, and then my note was, "Were were there things you chose not to include because it would alter the portraits of the of the people that you're painting and and the portrait you think you're painting of them?" And and I was really wondering about how much you might have struggled with how much of that his point of view about that uh you you chose to include, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah yeah,
1: no, I that's great, yeah, um, so our primary filmmaking team, there's three of us. we are all um would identify as as cisgender, and then two of us are white, and one of us is black, and so um, and we are all straight too uh so um, I think that that we needed to listen. With that moment. We had a version of the film that didn't include that. And we played it for some of our friends. Uh, We screened it for some of our friends who um, identify as queer. And they knew there's something missing here. They just Mm -hmm. knew. And, you know, I mean, we're in this moment now where there are all these questions about what you can say and what you can't say. And Mm -hmm. really being really confused about it. But I think in the end, what we decided is that human beings are incredibly complex, and it was more important for us. And, and one of the things that, that makes me sad right now is we take these very complex stories in sort of our national discourse and we simplify them in order to sort of weaponize them in order to sort of use them to sort of, you know, win points in an argument. And at that moment, I think you take this person that you are really enjoying being around and appreciate and feel this affection for, and he says something that makes you feel very uncomfortable. And we see the complexity of being human at that moment. And um, I don't doubt that there, this film has not gotten play in some places because we included that line. Hmm. Um, Or I suspect it's been a regular question, right? And sometimes it's a question of genuine curiosity. And sometimes it's a question of like, I don't know if you should do this. And we don't really have this like great answer other than to say, we feel like we need to engage with people in this way um, to include these sort of levels of complexity because you're going to talk to your grandparents, you're going to talk to your parents, or you're going to talk to sort of younger people. And they, there's things that they're going to say that make you kind of go, what on earth? I don't get that. But let me try and understand. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily why we made the film. Like that's not, um, I'm still discovering why we made the film, I would say. Um, but but I think it was a really, really important to include it. Um, and it would be unfair to, to Clarence, it would be unfair to James, and it would be unfair to all the people that watch it that know that that exists.
0: Yeah, no, that's that that makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I don't, I don't think that what you do end up including from James in that statement that he makes, I think that that, I don't think it fundamentally changes how I, as a viewer, uh, felt about James. As a person or character in this film, but it did make me wonder was there even more that he might have said yeah, yeah. along those lines that you were like, Well, I got this, we got this, and we really don't need any further sort of explanation from yeah. him about this subject?
1: Yeah, that I mean, and uh, yeah, um. And to be honest, it, it was a hard thing to also figure out because, like, James in his actions was very loving towards mm-hmm. Clarence. Yeah. And I think he still really likes him. I, I just think he just saw Clarence being gay as the same thing as him being an addict. Right. I think Clarence experienced a lot more judgment from other people um, in uh, in the industry uh, and, and in the community. Um, and, and, you know, the other hard thing about it with this kind of filmmaking is at some point you need to show it, not tell it. Right. And so we could have had all this stuff about people saying this and that and this and that, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, then it becomes hearsay. Um, so.
0: Yeah. yeah. and Right, right, right. And I, you know, I, I think um and I wonder if you if you experimented with this at all I I I think you could make this film as purely an observational documentary without yeah. any of the uh sort of talking head stuff that's sprinkled throughout.
1: Um, yeah. And we actually that's kind of how we started out and uh you know going back to that my comment about make the film you have uh not not the one that you want. Um you know I there is this sort of like, I don't know if it's legit or not, but there is this sort of like allure of the pure observational Frederick Wiseman film, right? And I, I think I would make the case that one of the reasons Frederick Wiseman is successful is because he's Frederick Wiseman. Like, if anybody tried to pull that <laughs> off today, people would be like, this is boring. Um, there, and there I is don't this think it, thing,
0: there is this film on Criterion, which is like a night shift or something where it's like uh 12 hours in a factory yeah there you go and it is 12 (laughs) hours long like you're just watching you know
1: (laughs) that's amazing um and but i have you know i think maybe part of like maturing is you hope that you become honest with who you are and one of the things that i love to do is i love to talk with people and um you know there was there was like a there was a lot of like really interesting detail in the film, right mm-hmm. um, that I really sort of like and appreciate. um but like some of that the complexity of what was happening, like wasn't fully coming across as we were sort of editing things. And so actually we did do an initial edit with James on sort of our first shoot, but it wasn't until about halfway through that we started then doing more and more interviews with people. And it was because we sort of like realized that something wasn't coming across. And so let's go ahead and use our strengths. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I'm so glad that we did because I will say as well that when we filmed the majority of it, our uh, understanding and uh, the amount that we initially pushed in, especially I would say the first four, four months or so, into the institution of the black funeral home, like that wasn't. On our radar nearly as much And it was when we began working uh, With Alana Garland Our producer um, That she helped sort of Open up this whole There's something else going on here Like the passing on Has this weight Because of what the Black funeral home means In the black community It's different than what the funeral home Means where I grew up Where I didn't know any undertaker at all Um, so, So that, I think then, because we did those interviews, it allowed us to sort of push into that. And I think that one's appreciation of the film often is contingent, not all the time, is contingent upon how much they want to either... They already understand that dynamic or how much they want to enter into it. The more that you understand the importance and the role that these men mostly men historically and now men and women have in the community, the more weight this has and the more, and the less it becomes about this sort of like strange thing about death and, and this quirky little like, you know, and it becomes about like really like core things to what it means to be human and identity and passing on.
0: Yeah. I I just want to say the passing on seems to me like one of the all time best perfect titles for a movie at what point in the process did, did, did that get figured out
1: you know i we still uh this morning i looked at we still have half of our folder structure is still the funeral home which was the original name um yeah we looked through a bunch of different things um my friend death was one that we called <laughs> um what was uh all that remains but i think there actually is a short documentary about that i still th- love that with the riff on remains Mm -hmm. um and they're actually i didn't even realize this till a month or two ago we did lots of searches there actually is another film called passing on uh it was a pbs film like 10 years ago or so um but yeah it was uh so i our editor tyler and producer and and lana they're both sort of producers and they creative producers and then Tyler also edited they tend to be a little more straightforward with things which is really helpful because I sort of am all about emotion and feeling and so I started sort of riffing with the with passing on calling it passing on and I said no I think it needs to be the passing on because it needs and they were just like no that's not going to work at all it was sort of also like they would also make fun of me because I was like I think we need dissolves in the film like, Nate, you can't do dissolves. I was like, no, it just feels right. It feels right to have these dissolves. And uh, so anyways, we sort of like just sat with it, but it was halfway through. It was it was well past filming, and it was uh, about halfway through um, editing of the film that we figured out there was going to be the passing on. And then you sort of sit with it, and then it becomes like, oh, yeah, that is the name of it. Um, we still sometimes refer to it as the funeral home, though, just in in, in talking. So yeah, well, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs>
0: you can say whatever you want, Pratt. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that's right.
0: <laughs> um, uh, uh, I got like three or four more things that are bouncing around in my head to ask yeah. you. Um, uh, and maybe the one that makes the most sense at this point is a question about. I don't know if you can give me a percentage or not of 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 stuff that you realize is magical and you're capturing it and it you can't you're you're like this is great stuff while you're shooting versus mm-hmm. uh going back and watching what you've captured and then seeing oh i wow we got this stuff i didn't even realize how good this was and this is definitely yeah. going to be in the film
1: Yeah um well uh, so interviews Interviews, you kind of get a sense while you're doing the interview. Like, this is, like, really helpful. And part of it is, is like, how concise they are and how honest they are. But they kind of – they get moving and they get rolling. You're not surprised by them, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, it's not like a moment just happens, right? You're sort of sitting down and you're paying attention to it. Um, And it, I'll give you sort of two examples that kind of went both ways. Um, mm-hmm. So we had one experience – um. And there were a number of reasons that we didn't include it. When I filmed it, I think I remember saying to Tim, our cinematographer, that was the most pure, wonderful, 15 straight minutes of filmmaking that I have ever been a part of. It just was, like, perfect. And we didn't include it. (laughs) Um, And it was the scene where... um, we didn't include it because it just raised too many questions. Like legally, we were in the clear. Hmm. Ethically, we were in the clear. But like, uh, for uh, for a, a portion of audience members, it would have raised too many questions. And basically, sometimes bodies stick around because people don't pay, or because of life gets in the way. And James and Clarence had to go check on two bodies that were. Um, totally, like, they were kept properly. Like, everything was the way that it should be. But if you don't work in a funeral home, what happens is sort of like, what on earth? And because they start to smell. And so they open up one, and this was somebody that didn't pay. Like, what do you do if somebody doesn't pay? They open up the casket to check, the person had been embalmed and then they smell and the smell is, and they start making fun of each other. And so there's also this sort of strange thing. We tried to keep most of the humor, although, I mean, that's one of the interesting things at working in a funeral home, right? Like you dealing with tragic deaths and then you got to figure out where to go eat lunch. Sure. Um, So that was a scene like that. We were, I was just like this and it was just like, it just hit all of these incredible beats and, and um, we just couldn't figure out how to make it work in a way that... And I th- actually still think Tim, I love Tim. Tim thinks we should have included it. And that mm-hmm. goes back to your thing, what your earlier question about including things that you may want to include as a filmmaker but may not be right. good um, for the overall project. But then we had that, that Morales scene where yeah. they're making... Yeah. When that was unfolding, I was cringing. And I was like, it it I was like, are they performing for the camera? Um and there were some things later on when like Tony comes walking in and they then it starts getting very performative. Mm-hmm. But when we edited it, it was like, no, there's something like pure and honest here. And it was actually the moment where Clarence or where James like finally kind of lets down his guard a little bit mm-hmm. when he says like he He wants to go work at a white firm like it's just like you can hear the indignation, so that was yeah. one that sort of surprised me when we edited it. I was like, oh no that and that obviously I think is one of the most meaningful scenes in the film
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely it is um but you're but but this the, what you were talking about just r- reminds me of that sort of old saying that that your film is your film isn't done until you cut out your favorite. Yeah, seen seen in the movie, and then here, yeah. you know then you know you're yeah. good to go. Yeah, <laughs> um, but um, uh, I want to ask you, well, a quick a quick question. So, as somebody who is not an embalmer, not a mortician, how disturbing was it to spend that time in
1: there? You know, it was probably harder when we weren't filming. I, I think you know, uh, the camera, the audio has this amazing ability to act as a filter and to stop you from engaging. And I think one of the hard things for a lot of documentary filmmakers is you know the you're in these spaces that are I mean I, I think about people that sort of work you know in very difficult places in the world and you need to sort of filter it out but you can't permanently do that. And at some point it all comes back. There, uh, for me, um, I live in Richmond, Virginia. The Richmond airport, there's something in the jet bridge of that airport that they use the same cleaner as the funeral home. And I would get out, (laughs) and it was like all these memories would come like it's not just the smell, it's all the memories. Yeah. So we really tried to avoid, um, and we were not there when there now nah, there was a little bit that was sort of very tragic and difficult um no children although that would be you know and even sort of uh fetuses sometimes would come through there hmm. um and we would just see them covered um but yeah it was it was I don't think I ever got over it I still I think about going back there and I feel the joy of walking in and hanging out with James and then the possibility of walking to that back room. It just, if there's a weightiness to it that I don't really want. Yeah. To any part of. Um, so it, it, it wasn't easy. The other thing that we discovered, like within a day of shooting, we put, I mean, we knew that we were going to put the camera on tripods. We were not going to chase the action. We were going to let it unfold. Right. And we figured out really quickly, lower the camera, And shoot up the what we needed to film was the conversations, the interactions, not the activity that was sort of secondary. And that also sort of like saved us from.
0: I could talk to you all day about this
1: movie. (laughs) I'm happy to. (laughs) um, Because the funny thing is, like, we have found there are clearly like there's the passing on people and then there's other people that. And I have some theories about why this is, but like that just are not into it. They don't get it. And, um, um but I want to, but okay, but there, there's three sequences
0: that I really want to just get your take on. Um, yeah. and, but, but first I want to ask one more general question, which is because you just alluded to it, the visual style of this film, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the, the, all these elegantly framed compositions, um, uh, was that is that is that how you always shoot is that did you talk about that going in or is that something that kind of evolved
1: yeah um i think we like the sort of the challenge of the sort of like the frame i mean the space is so visually interesting um and i i i do like a lot of symmetry right there's a lot of like right angles and everything Mm -hmm. is perpendicular or parallel um there's a lot of wide shots i think um i just sort of felt like it just didn't feel right to chase it and i know that like a lot of like observational documentary you need to have it uh handheld and you get a lot of real close-ups you don't get nearly as many wide shots and i i think that there is um I think this is something we intuitively felt. I wouldn't say that we necessarily would have said this at the moment. But I, I think that what these men and women do is beautiful and worth documenting in and of itself. And I think that if you have this manic camera that's chasing the action, you, you have a film that is more likely to go searching and find the trauma of the situation. Whereas what we did allowed us to sort of focus more on, I think, on the beauty of the situation by having these sort of more carefully framed and locked off shots, and I think that was really important. And I think my, part of my hope of the film is that 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 is sort of what it's remembered for is the beauty of it. Um, you know, we we're actually going to be ho- hopefully doing uh, a f- a photo essay in a magazine based on stills of the shot of of stills in the film. Because I just think it's so, it's it's beautiful. It's it's and it's beautiful for two reasons. It's beautiful because of how it was shot, but it's beautiful because of what it is shot. And I think um, a lot of times it's one or the other. Yeah, yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense, and um, it is just an absolutely gorgeous film to look at. Um, okay, three scenes. Uh, yeah. First of all, you've got a you've got a scene in this film and a laugh line. I don't know about a laugh line, or maybe it's a laugh reaction uh, mm-hmm. that's as pure and funny as anything I've ever seen in a documentary that isn't, you know, overtly a comedy or something. And that's the orca scene. Yeah. Um. And and, and Clarence's. Uh, reaction to James's question about it. Yes. Seen that that yeah. movie. Maybe especially funny to me because I did see that movie this yes, past year. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you watched it this last year.
0: I did. I was, I've I been producing this podcast called Crackpot Cinema where these two guys talked about, you know, completely uh, bizarre uh, crackpot films uh and with a, with a loving appreciation, and they're both huge orca fans, and they did an orca episode, and I was like, you know i I recorded their conversation and I was like, I guess I should watch this thing, and I did and um, I watched a lot of crazy, terrible movies this past year because of that podcast, but uh orca orca's got some moments in it that are as crazy as anything
1: yes, you can yeah. see, yeah, well, you know um, there's um as a side note, they're on the disney plus uh on Disney plus that whales show. Uh that they have right now. I don't actually, it's, I think Sigourney Weaver, my kids were watching it, and they're actually, like, one of the baby orcas die, and they, like, swim alongside it for, like... So there also is, there was, like, this interesting sort of contemporary example of it as well.
0: Yeah, Um, but, so, uh, I mean, is that, is that, is that crafted in any way? Like, are you, are you stealing Clarence's reaction from something else, or...
1: Oh, uh, you, can re- actually, you can reveal your secrets. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that that one is. There actually is a whole second part of that conversation. And I, I mean, his James's comedic timing mm-hmm. and he hunted them down. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, man, you couldn't you couldn't hire an actor to get that good. Um, so they initially. So James has over his desk uh, this uh picture of a a baboon and anyways they have this whole conversation about baboon funerals and we just like couldn't quite get that one to work and then they sort of then go into the orcas and they go you know have that and now that was pretty much it like initially with the baboons i think Clarence was like legitimately interested like he asked about it and it was because it was like much more like to do this but then I think when James gets into this movie from the 70s he's just like what is he talking about it's so weird so yeah that was that was basically the way the only thing and I can't remember if in the film if he looks at us he, I mean you, you get the cut to to Clarence. It's and almost like that,
0: he I can't I don't know that he looks at the camera but it almost feels like he does like he's almost breaking the fourth wall there. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean so it's just like the, it it actually, it actually reminds me the, the section of all these interviews where we talk about like how, you know, how terrible is it that we're not being able to show these films in theaters with with full audiences and to be able to hear the reaction. Have you been able to screen The Passing On to a to a crowd?
1: Yeah, um so we have screened it to two crowds, sort of. We did a uh, rough cut work in progress screening in Durham, North Carolina, at the Haytai Heritage Film Festival in February. So like a month before everything mm-hmm. went to... Mm-hmm. Um, and it was remarkable. I mean, it was so good. It was... Um, and did that moment get a huge laugh? Yeah, it did get a strong laugh. It did. Um and then we, uh, we also, a couple months before, we did it with the the fraternity that James is a part of that gave him the um, National Embalmer of the Year. We screened it with them. Mm-hmm. And actually, the thing that I remember most about that <laughs> was uh, the scene that we included with the car accident, where it's just this quiet moment. <laughs> well, there, <laughs> you know, that's my
0: second sequence that I want to talk to you about. So, yeah, tell me that story, and then we can
1: get yeah. into it. So, yeah, it's this quiet moment and he's sort of, it's Mother's Day and he's, and all of a sudden this car crash happens out of nowhere. And um, I have a a funny little story about our inclusion of that. So anyways, what I remember most about screaming that is like people like, oh, (laughs) like it was like a a jump scare. I hate, hate, hate jump scares. (laughs) I can't handle horror movies because of jump scares. I I watch Stranger Things on mute. With subtitles because I can't handle jump scares, and then I'm the idiot that puts a jump scare into a documentary. <laughs> um, yeah, I, so I, I
0: do want to ask. That's the one. That's the one moment where I'm like, I mean, that whereas a filmmaker, I'd be like, Oh, wow, I, this is great that this happened. I can't believe this happened. But then, I, I, I'd love to hear your thought process on then including it in the film and maybe debate. You know what? What is it? What does it do for you, thematically or or yeah. structurally or anything
1: else? Yeah. Uh, so we, it was not in early edits, and we had. Um, it was not in. It was one of the three or four last scenes to get added. Um, the last scene to get filmed was the gentrification scene, um, but that got added as soon as it got fi- film uh, uh, filmed. Um, i we did a ton of feedback screenings and I would get a lot of advice from people i would um and people that I sort of had gotten to know in the documentary community and um one of the people that we hired to give us some notes was Robert Green um, mm. who I had gotten to know when I had done wrestling for Jesus he had done his wrestling documentary and we had you know and I just said hey would you be willing to take this and get and we did some back and forth and it was not in the in the film at that point point. and then i was like one of the last things i was like hey, robert i got this i got this one scene here and uh what do you kind of think i should actually see what uh, his his uh response was cuz it was pretty funny yeah. um and and i think i sort of felt like i felt like um it needed to be in there because or I had this sense of it needed to be in there. Um, and why we ultimately included it. So I say, I, I you know, I, I'd sent him some possible footage. And yeah. um, he, you know, some like scenes that we had cut. Um, and I say, and then I was like, oh, we've also got this one, right? And he wrote all lowercase with all due respect. <laughs> then all uppercase. Jesus Christ Nate put this entire thing in the movie right now. What the fuck? All of it. Mother, crash, all of it. <laughs> um, so wait,
0: so none of that visit to the grave. No, the visit to right? the
1: grave was there, but not the oh. crash. Yep. That was a that was. And I think um I think I was sort of worried about sort of the fourth wall aspect of it. Although we edited it in a way that it's not. Yeah, but it, you know, it introduces this dynamic that we never really explore, right? Like, what happened to that guy? What was going on? And, um, and I, it was sort of this moment that we, 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 you know, we would share it with each other. It was just this sort of like funny little, yeah. almost like meme, right? And, uh, like an internal filmmaking meme. And I then began to realize that, like, I mean, our film is not like a super three act structure, mm-hmm. but that moment does sort of transition you from act two to act three, and it's a way of sort of like stop. Something has happened. You're having this moment of like increased like tension and anxiety. The community's sort of falling. It, you know, it's no longer what it was when I grew up. Um the sort of reflection on his mother, you know, that kind of thing. And, and it just sort of, it, it just has this way of like knocking your feet out, you know? And um, because there's such like, especially that stuff about gentrification is such like a traditional documentary mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. And it just is a reminder. We're, we're done with that. We're going now into like the human, like life crashes through literally. Yeah, and I, you know,
0: as a filmmaker, I I don't know what I would have done, but I think as a viewer, I think it does help the film in that it sort of breaks the spell, and breaks the and and, and you know everyone is is in their own way so eloquent and sort of on point and um, uh, everything is you know and all those you know elegantly framed compositions and all that stuff and. It it it, I think if nothing else, it reminds you that oh, this is a documentary, and this and weird shit does happen in real life that will, that will break up even the most sort of like heartfelt moment of talking about somebody's parents and their their all the all the gifts that they gave and the and all that stuff. I think I I don't know why it works, but it's it it seems important in its in a strange way.
1: Yeah. Yep. Well, and I think you know a lot of documentary. Like, I think you, you start out like building these rules of engagement, sort of. Mm-hmm. Or, you know. Right. You know, like, so we're going to do interviews. We're going to do observational. We're going to have dissolves. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then you begin to sort of find these moments to break those. And and I think initially it was so outside of our rules. Mm-hmm. It was the outside world breaking in. Yep. But it works exactly for those reasons.
0: Yeah. Okay, last uh, sequence I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about, and then I'm going to let you go, I promise. Um, (laughs) Clarence's mirror ritual. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, tell me everything about it. Is this something he does?
1: Yeah. Uh. Yeah, so some (laughs) of that was already up there, and we did have him sort of erase it and redo it. Um, but it was where already up there. Where, where, where is that? Is in that his, his apartment. Mis-
0: it is. Okay.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So he was living in these sort of like, um, they didn't have them when I was in, in college, but it was sort of like, uh, housing that was, that's clearly designed for people in college and probably like two or three years outside. Um, it all felt like dorm rooms, but it was, you know, uh, kind of probably not unlike, um, the high rises that they built where the Memorial union was, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, so uh, not where Memorial, what was, what was the, what was the theater that was there?
0: Yeah. The university
1: square university square. Yeah. I saw a bunch of film festival films there. Um. So, so yeah, he would do that and he would change them. Like I think depending, like it wasn't sort of like every single morning he would do it. Um, and yeah, I mean Clarence is a remarkable guy. I think we just sort of said, "Hey, can you do that? Just do what you do." And then he just sat there and stared at the camera or stared at himself in the mirror. We didn't ask him to do that. He just sort of did it. And um yeah, it was it is this really remarkable image of what he sort of aspires to. The um you know, and and you know, we we sort of have some of the framing of the film is, you know, the pastor, teacher, mortician, and it it sort of aligns with sort of what Clarence sort of longs for as well.
0: Okay. Last question. I've kept you here long enough. Um Eddie dying and Eddie's funeral. Mm-hmm. Were you um were you, were you contemplating, were you wondering how you'd end the film, where you'd end the film, what yeah. the final, you know, sequence would be, and then, mm-hmm. then that
1: happened? Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the writing was on the wall that that was probably going to happen, although Eddie had been around for, you know, in, you know, a state that required you know, ongoing attention for years and years. And so it wasn't like a sure thing. I think we probably thought that it would probably end with sort of graduation and Clarence moving on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then obviously sort of that happened. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, where do you end a film? Where do you end these kind of films? And they can just keep going on and on and, both Clarence and James have, you know, experienced some really significant moments since we stopped filming. James went through a major car wreck, like he almost died. He hmm. basically had a diabetic seizure and drove into a laundromat, which is sort of like, you know, kind of funny All as well. He would laugh about it now. Um, Was that before you know- or
0: after the car crash at the cemetery?
1: <laughs> that was that was well after well after we filmed he's a hard time you know his his speech is not nearly what it was in the film mm. clarence went through the experience of trying to go work at white firms in san antonio or excuse me in austin that yeah. didn't work out he actually just graduated got his undergrad degree and just opened his own funeral home oh, wow. um and uh so there's been like remarkable things that Have happened since then that would have made really unfortunate. But their lives have they've really diverged, and so it wouldn't have made sense to continue filming. Sure. So yeah, it was um, yeah, it 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 wasn't like something that we counted on, and it was you know it was interesting. Like no matter what, I would I asked James a number. I'm a crier, right? Like get me in front of people, and you can have me talk about like kool-aid and i would start crying
0: yeah and
1: and james was like no i i you know i've got a job to do i'm not not gonna cry and so um obviously when the weight of that hit him you know it's one thing it's one thing when it's a friend it's another thing when it's your uncle um
0: yeah and it's a beautiful i mean you know i i don't i don't I don't know where you uh, at what point you made sure to include towards the very beginning of the film, his, his talking about it's his job to help families grieve and you can't help families grieve if you're grieving at the same time. So we get this journey from him stating his, you know, uh, it's his business to not grieve to the end of the film where we do see that tear and that grief.
1: Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, it was powerful. I actually wasn't there for it. Um Tim was filming that. Uh, I had sort of other commitments, but um yeah, it was good. And actually, you know, he does he gives a really rem- it's uh, you know, I, I, this is an interesting uh study in editing. Um he gives um, uh an interesting um what's not the word? Uh, what's the word? It's not a speech, a um eulogy to mm-hmm. his uncle. And the early edits had that and uh, Lana our producer was like, I think at this point you just need to be with him. You don't need to li- you don't need more information, you don't need to listen. And she was totally right about that. And 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 actually the ending of the film too. It's just as a testament to like a lot of times you just don't need everything. Just like be there. And we had this whole thing where James walked back there and he's reflecting on like traditions and here and Tim to his credit too, it was like, you don't just see it. Like you walk back there and you see there's a new generation of students um, and you don't need to have them talk about it and interpret it. It's, it's just, a, it's, it's a reminder that like, we don't need nearly as much interpretation in documentary, in this style of documentary filmmaking as you sort of think you do. Especially once you get past the opening 20 minutes. You need a lot in the opening 20 minutes, but not at the end.
0: Well, Nathan, it's been an absolute joy talking to you this morning, um, and thank you so much for sending us your film and letting us share it with our with our audience. Uh, I can't wait for people to see this film. Uh, thank you.
1: Yeah, well, and I will say too, I do want to say that the Wisconsin Film Festival, you know, is very significant in my development as a filmmaker. You know, the films that I saw there have like fundamentally changed the way that i see what film can be and what it is um and so sort of have this confluence of like my affections in the festival is really remarkable for me so that's great to hear thank you so much yes thank you